So in his excellent book called Baptism and Fullness, um, which has been massively helpful for not just this message, but really just for understanding altogether the person and work of the Holy Spirit, John Stott begins with this sentence. Wherever one looks in the church, there is an evident need for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Wherever one looks in the church, there is an evident need for a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. I think most of us would say, yes. He, now, he wrote that about 30 years ago, by the way, but that's massively true. Think about within the church the cultural captivity that we're experiencing. That's nothing new. The people of God in the Old Testament experienced cultural captivity. But that's going on. Think about people turning away from basic and plain, undisputed, historic Christian doctrines. I could go on and on. The result is worldliness, a loss of evangelistic fervor, fire, and power. So yeah, I think, I think what Stott said three decades ago holds true for today as well. We really need an Isaiah 44 and verse 3 moment where God says, I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. Water being a common biblical symbol for the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, would you agree with Stott? I think, that's, I think that good recognition for a, a, a fresh work of the Holy Spirit and a passionate pursuit of it is, is, are, are good things. But Stott also points out in his book, they sometimes open us up to things that are less than biblical in matters of pneumatology or doctrine of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that people will often say, making that good observation, we need the Spirit to move, is they will say something like this, what we need to be is baptized in the Spirit. You ever heard that? And if we get baptized in the Spirit, man, you'll experience things about God that you never experienced before. You'll be all that God intends you to be, and bam, it will bump up your trajectory of your spiritual life to a higher plane. And inevitably, people will go to the book of Acts, specifically chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and they'll say, hey, listen, do you remember Jesus, did he not tell those early followers after he ascended to the Father, right before he ascended to the Father's right hand, did he not say, wait here for the promise of the Father, verse 5, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit, so just wait. And sure enough, they wait, and what happens on Pentecost? Boom! The Spirit falls, the gift of the Father is poured out, and man, there is explosive growth in the early church. So it all sounds so convincing, right? Like, man, we do need another Pentecost. Man, we do need to be baptized in the Spirit. But a closer look at the Word of God in, these, in this text will show us uh, that we need a, a better, more faithful, and more helpful reading of Scripture. So let me explain. What if I said we need another incarnation? What would you say? What if I said we need another resurrection? What would you say? What if I said we need another, um, well, crucifixion, then resurrection, not over here. What if I said we need another ascension? Those, any of those four events. You would say, no, we, we don't need another one of those, and in fact, we can't, because they are accomplished historical events, right? Incarnation, 
Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, non-repeatable historical events, right? Our faith is anchored in history, right? To which most people would say, well, yeah, exactly. Those are unrepeatable historical events. Well, listen to what Stott says about Pentecost or outpouring. He said that is the last act in Christ's saving ministry. Returning to glory and in fulfillment of the promise of the Father and the prophecies of the Old Testament, pouring out his spirit. In other words, this is part of the work of Christ. Christ came in the flesh. He was crucified on a cross. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to the Father's hand. And then he poured out his spirit in order to form what was not previously existing, the body of Christ. So like other events, it's non-repeatable. Are, are you tracking with me at all? I'm kind of going to do some detailed stuff before we get into the body of this message. I would add what is more, what is, more is this. The context of what happened then no longer exists today. What are you talking about? The context was this. You had people who were believers, right? Believers in the living God, but who were not yet indwelt by the Spirit of God in a New Testament kind of way. To amplify people who had received the forgiveness of God, but had not yet received the gift or the promise or the indwelling or the baptism of the Spirit of God. So for them, not for us, for them it was a bit of a two-stage thing. Stage one was people would turn from their sin, and put their faith in the living God, right? And they would receive forgiveness because they were trusting in the mercy of the anticipated Messiah before Christ came and while he's on earth. And to be sure, such people were children of God, right? They belonged to God. They're forgiven. But stage two, and I'm just trying to really make this clear, stage two is when Jesus after being incarnated, after being crucified, after being resurrected and then ascending to the Father's right hand, in fulfillment of the promise of the Father and the prophecies of the Old Testament, he poured out his spirit as his last saving act in his saving ministry to form what did not exist in the Old Testament. Was there a body of Christ in the Old Testament? That's an, was there the body of Christ? Church did not exist. He said, I will build my church. That's future tense. And he did so in such a massively demonstrative way so that no one could miss the massive importance of the inauguration of the glorious new covenant. So that's how we need to look at this, this scripture. We need to look at scripture together. The tongues of fire were on top of those early believers, not so that we could say, hey, we could get tongues of fire on us. I, I've heard a lot of things. I've never heard anybody claim that. Have you ever heard anybody claim that? No, the tongues of fire, it ain't this, this, all the scripture is not always about us. It's about him and what he's doing. And it harkens back to the burning bush. Do you remember when God appears to Moses in the burning bush? It was the very presence of God by way of theophany. And it's like he's saying now in the church, God dwells with his people in a way he did not in the Old Testament. Woo! You all are burning bushes. We have the presence of God with us now in the new covenant, the gift of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. 
Or how about the rushing wind? The rushing wind wasn't so that we could have cool sound effects. What does the rushing wind point to? Do you remember Genesis 1, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and out of chaos created beautiful order? He's saying the creation of the church is so epic, it's on par with the creation of the world. The Spirit of God moved. What I'm trying to say is those two-stage circumstances no longer exist. Be clear, now when somebody receives Christ, guess who they also receive? The Spirit of God. In other words, baptism in the Spirit by Jesus happens when we receive Jesus. It's crucial to accurately understand the Bible, the difference between descriptive passages which describes something that happened, and prescriptive passages which tell us how we are to do, how we're to walk it out, what we're to, what are to expect. And everybody agrees with this at some level. For instance, you wouldn't go to 1 Kings 4. Elisha comes up on that widow with a dead son, and Elisha lays on top of that dead son. His eyes flicker open, he sneezes seven times, and he walks away fully alive. Nobody here would say, you know what, we need to have a ministry of getting godly people to lay on dead people so that their eyes will flicker, they will sneeze seven times and they'll walk away. Would anybody say, that's what we, that, that text was there to tell us to do that? Would anybody say that? Or you go a few chapters later, Elisha's now dead, and a marauding band throws a dead man on top of the bones of Elisha, his grave, and you remember that man comes back to life, supernatural, incredible. Nobody would say, you know, we need to have a ministry of when someone dies, we need to throw their body on the grave of a godly dead person. Nobody says that. Do you know there's actually a movement, though, called great grave soaking? Some of the songs that we sing come from that movement, which I have to be honest with you, increasingly concern me in some ways, because that's not what that was there for, right? Or how about this? Ananias and Sapphira. Boom! Some serious church discipline, right? The Spirit strikes them down because they're kind of they weren't right about their giving. Should I stand up there and say, if you're not right about your giving, God the Spirit's going to strike you down right now? No, that, that's not why it's there, right? Do you get the point? So while we certainly learn about God from all of Scripture, it's all there for us. We primarily derive our doctrine about how we're to walk it out, what we're to do from the clear prescriptions of Scripture. So when I see people going to the book of Acts, as they do, and take descriptive texts and making them into prescriptions, I believe they abuse the text and often abuse people in doing so. The scripture is very clear that people are now baptized or receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at conversion. Let me just give you two verses. In Galatians 3.2, Paul makes the point that they receive the Spirit of God by hearing and believing the gospel, not by some second intentional act of reception. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, and he's, look at those, he's talking about the gospel, that's how you've begun, to now be perfected in the flesh? In other words, you, you got the Spirit when you were saved. 
But I think the slam dunk verse is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. And that's why there is never, ever, 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 ever a time in Scripture when you are told to be baptized in the spirit, when you're told to seek the baptism of the spirit. Why are you not told to seek the baptism of the spirit? What's the answer? Because it happened. Boom. That's the point right there. That's exactly it. It's a one-time, initiatory, never-to-be-undone, never-to-be-repeated event that took place when you turned to Christ. One baptism. That's the first point, and I'm done by way of introduction. So that's good ground to cover. Now, having said all that, I wanted to get that out of the way. I want to talk to you about the filling of the Spirit. Because the filling of the Spirit can be lost and must be restored. The filling of the Spirit can ebb away, but it can flow richly as well. The the filling of the Spirit is something we are to grow in our entire life. And it is something that we are to increasingly appropriate by faith. In other words, our lives are to be marked by the constant and consistent and relentless pursuit of the filling of the Spirit of God. There's one baptism, having established that, I want to talk to you about the many fillings. I want to camp on that. And we're going to look at the two texts that you heard read earlier by Pastor Cleet, and I'm going to make three points. Hopefully you have an outline. If not, maybe you can grab an outline at the table in the back. We're going to see, first of all, the command to be filled, Then second of all, we're going to see the characteristics. What would it look like if I was being filled? How would I know it? And then third of all, the commitment we need to make to keep on being filled. So first of all, Ephesians 5.18, the command. Are you guys all right? Ephesians 5.18. So often, and maybe this is just a confession of my own, maybe you can identify, we're more like dead and deflated balloons than filled up, right? I know the Spirit is not air, but it's an illustration. We're all told to be filled with the Spirit. So often we're like a little balloon that's still in its package, hasn't been stretched out, hasn't been blown up. And Ephesians 5.18 has something to say about that. Look what it says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Just as alcohol then controls a drunk, the Spirit is to control a believer. Be filled by the Spirit. And there's four things. I brought this out a few weeks ago. I want to repeat it. Four things about this, about this verse. Number one, it's in the imperative mood. Meaning, this is a command. This is not a suggestion. God's not saying, hey, if you want to get a little bit more serious about your faith, would you consider being filled? No, it's a command. It's an imperative. Imperative mood, be filled. Second of all, it's in the plural form. This is not for one or two or a select few, the elite eight, a special group of spiritual commandos. This is for all of us. It's plural. This is a command 
directed to each and every believer of every age. Third of all, it's in the passive voice. Just a way of saying God is actually the one that fills us. We can't, you know, manipulate it up, conjure it up, emotion it up. No, you can't do that. He fills, but we do have a commitment to make to pursue him doing that, which leads to the fourth aspect. It is in the present tense. This is not a one-time decisive deal that took place back at conversion. The tense has the idea of this is something we need to keep on obeying, keep on pursuing, keep on being filled. And do you know it's the expected state of believers? It's, this is not to, to be the exceptional state of believers. It's actually to be the expected state of believers. You remember when they uh, chose the first deacons in Acts chapter 6? And they said, look out among you for men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In Acts chapter 13, you come across Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It was said that he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And again, Galatians 3, 2, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you'll be perfected by the flesh. It's the expected state of every believer. Now, I close out this first major point by giving an illustration Stott gives in his book that is super helpful, I think, in, in, in kind of explaining and describing how we need to grow in being filled. It's not a static thing. He makes the evident observation, there wouldn't be anybody who would disagree, that there is a vast difference in the lung capacity of a seven-pound newborn and a 200-pound full-grown man, right? It takes a whole lot less to fill the small little lungs of the seven-pound infant. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot to fill the spiritual lungs of new believers, right? Doesn't, in, in fact, they are filled. They really are. And that's why you're filled right there at salvation. You ever notice why believers, and you remember this, are filled with such joy? You're just walking on cloud nine. Man, it's not just because your sins have been forgiven. It's because of that. But because, man, the Spirit of God is filling you. And we know from several scriptures in Acts and Romans 15 that one of the hallmarks of being filled by the Spirit is joy. Not so much in your circumstances, but in the Christ who saved you. And new believers, they don't know much, do they? They couldn't find third Habakkuk, Right? They don't know not much about the plan or the purpose of God. They don't even really know that much about the love of God, frankly, or the faithfulness of God. But they know I was dead and now I'm alive. I was under the judgment of God and now I'm a child of God. And the Spirit fills them to capacity for their seven-pound lungs. But as we move out in our faith, you know where we're going with this, right? The, the capacity of our spiritual lung grows. Vistas of knowledge open up about God. We hear sermons. We read the Bible. We talk to other believers. And there's so much more about God we learn. But unfortunately, our filling doesn't often keep pace with our knowledge growing. Stott puts it this way. The tragedy is that often our faith does not keep pace with our knowledge our eyes are open, but we hang back from appropriating these truths by faith. That's how we lose fullness, not so much by disobedience, but by unbelief. 
as we grow in knowledge, as our spiritual lung capacity grows, so, much, so must our filling. So that's a command, first of all. The command is for all of us here to constantly pursue filling. Number two, the characteristics of this filling. How, how would you know if you're being filled? Like you, you, get, a, you get a special sign from heaven. Um, you walk around with a holy halo around your head. Uh, I think some people probably would think that. The evidence, well, here's a few evidences before we get to this text, is one evidence clear in Scripture is boldness. Boldness to stand for your faith. And boldness to declare your faith. Remember the early church has this prayer meeting? And, and, and they're getting hammered, right? They're getting, they're getting they're, these are, bad stuff happened to them. And they don't say, Lord, get rid of this bad stuff. They say, Lord, help us to continue to speak the word of God with faith. And then the scripture says they were filled with boldness and they continued to speak the word of God boldly. Remember that? Or how about, the, every, you know, one time it says the apostles, they're, they're getting persecuted and they say, hey, why are you doing this? And it says they're filled with the spirit and they say, we must obey God rather than men. Remember that? Or one time, this is kind of, honestly, this is kind of funny to me because we often think that if someone is spirit-filled, they would never say anything harsh. Well, listen to this. Elias the magician, he's kind of opposing the faith. You remember him there in Acts 13. Paul, it says, filled with the spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. He said that he was spirit-filled when he said that. Enemy, enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So boldness is one of the signs of spirit filling. Here, here's another sign of spirit filling, um, in, really indisputable, and that is perseverance in suffering. Like you keep following Jesus when it gets hard. You don't deconstruct. You continue to walk with him, even though it's hard. Do you remember Stephen? He's being stoned to death, right? And the scripture tells us there in Acts chapter 7, it says, when they heard these things, he's preaching the gospel, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they rushed him, and they crushed him, and all this stuff, but he was faithful. And by the way, that scripture tells us that if that time ever came for anyone here, the Spirit of God would give you the capacity to be faithful. Now, I could go on and on, but those are descriptive passages. And what I want to do is dial in on these prescriptive passages to tell us, to see explicitly what the evidence of Spirit-filling is. There are five, for the grammarians here, five participles. Participles of result, meaning the result of being filled, first of all, verse 19, is that you would be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What's he talking about there? You probably see it in your outline. One of the results is worship, very simply, and yet very powerfully, worship. Maybe you say, I sing to God. That's good. That's who we need to sing to. But according to this verse, we're not only singing to God, we're singing to one another. 
Is that, doesn't it say that? That this, listen, let me read it again. We are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You could, I'm just going to fill this in so we get the idea. As we sing or by singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, the context is as we're singing to God, we're speaking to one another. Don't you find encouragement when other people sing? They're like, man, they're captured by these truths. Listen, there is a horizontal purpose to worship in addition to a vertical one. Vertically, it blesses God. Horizontally, it benefits one another. And that's why singing needs to be truly congregational and not a concert, at least not a concert that you don't want to be at. Because some people go to concerts and they probably sing more than they would during congregational singing. You know, the, the responsibility for us is to have, you know, relatively singable songs. But we sing. Now, I don't want to be legalistic about this. Of course, sometimes people who are really worshiping God can't sing. One reason is they may be so overcome by the presence of God. Remember John? There's a vision of Jesus. He can't even open his mouth. He falls at his feet as dead. And though we don't see Jesus face to face like that, sometimes we really do sense his presence. And you can't, all, all you can do is bow your head or lay down or go flat on your face. And sometimes you might be suffering so much, feeling so much pain or grief or whatever, that, that you, 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 you can't open your mouth. I don't think Job was having, having a singspiration. He was sitting on some rock scraping his boils with a stone, Right? So, so I don't want to be legalistic about that, but I do want to be faithful to this text. And over the long haul, according to this text, one of the evidences of being filled or not filled is your capacity to join in worship. And our default position can't be, because sometimes for people it is, well, it's going on where? What do people like to say? I'm worshiping, it's just happening in my heart. And, and frankly, that's, that's based on a defective King James translation, which says, make your melody in your heart. But the preposition is really from your heart or out of your heart. That's where true worship begins, right? In the heart. Again, this is not something that's worked up, that happens automatically, but happens because the Spirit boom, is filling us. And we're seeing the greatness and the grandeur and the glory and the grace of the living God who loved us and gave his life for us. So there's worship. Number uh, two, verse 20, there's thanksgiving. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is no minor theme for Paul. He's always talking about thanksgiving, isn't he? And by the way, he's not talking about thanksgiving from the Hyatt Regency after pigging out at Texas Day Brazil, followed by a show with the Fox. No, you know, you know the deal. He's in prison. He's suffering. He's being mistreated. And yet he says, when the Spirit is filling you, thanksgiving will be the result. Now, I don't want to get it twisted because some people, I think, misuse this verse. He's not saying you thank God directly for evil, Right? Like, there is, there is a context, uh, specifically um, the context of, of this whole chapter. 
But there's, there, even in the worst stuff, there's always something to be thankful for, right? Isn't that true? In the worst stuff, there's always. Now, I do want to read you an extended quote because some people, I think, misuse this verse. This is from Philip Ryken's commentary. How can we always give thanks for everything? Because some of you have gone or are going through stuff like, I can't give. How do I give thanks to God for that? Maybe you don't give thanks to God for that, but for how he's showing up in the midst of that. He goes on to say, we easily understand how and why we should express godly gratitude for the blessings in our lives. But apparent blessings are not the only things that enter our lives. In other words, you get more than blessing in life. You get tough stuff. Are we to give thanks for murder and abuse, for cruelty and hate? The answer must be no. We cannot speak with God's spirit and at the same time praise him for what he himself hates. Yes, the extent of our praise is to be expansive always and for everything, but there is a context for this thanksgiving. It is to be in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are filled with the Spirit when we praise God for everything that hallows and magnifies the name of our Savior. To the extent that tragedy makes us dependent on our Lord and enables us others to see his comfort and to seek his eternal promises, we can give thanks. As stars shine brighter in the desert and a diamond is more beautiful on black velvet, so is the name of our Savior. His glory, honor, and redemption beacons more brightly and more intensely in the darkness of this world. We give thanks even for the darkness that makes the glory of Christ's name more evident. The thanksgiving, however, is not for the horrors of a fallen world, but for the name of a Savior that can alone answer and redeem those very horrors. Now, I think that was good. Shakespeare has this line in King Lear. It goes like this. How sharper than a serpent's tooth is it to have a thankless child. How sharper than a toothless, not toothless, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is to have a thankless child. Now that's true, right? I mean, it's quite, have you ever been around somebody who is basically a chronic complainer and not a chronic Thanksgiver. Yeah, let's just be honest. Let's just be real. It's a pain. It's bratty. But how much more is it bratty when that person is a child of God? He says right here that one of the signs of being filled by the Spirit is not just worship, but thanksgiving in all things. And then third, there is this very, very popular word, submitting. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verb, submitting, has the idea of one person deliberately, intentionally, purposefully arranging themselves under the authority of another. It's actually, it was used in, in as ancient military to describe the relationship of, of, say, an NCO or commission officer to the subordinates and their responsibility to, to him. Paul oh, talks a whole lot. The, not just Paul. The Bible talks a lot about submission, right? Like 40 times this very word appears in your New Testament. Over 40 times. The Bible is full of calls for submission. Submission to who? Well, 
according to this text, to one another, right? To one another. Or it gives us calls to submit leaders to leaders. We, we, we submit as we seek the Lord t- together. We submit to one another. Congregants to pastors, Hebrews 13, 17. Wives to husbands. In fact, right, at, right following verse 21, it says, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So there's that relationship. There's a relationship of employees to employers. And we can go on and on and on what the scripture has to say. Now why do we do that? Because God has set up authorities in our life. God sets up authorities. Now as I reflected on this, I know that there are a lot of caveats, right, to this submission. You know, uh, you know, say abusive husband, right, or abusive leadership. There, there's tons of caveats, um, but I, I feel like when this topic is broached in our anti-authority culture, more time is spent on the caveats and the real than on the emphasis here that one of the marks of being filled by the Spirit isn't just worship, it isn't just thanksgiving, but it is submission to the authorities that God has placed in your life and the relationships He has. So. I love what Stott says when he says the chief evidence of fullness of the Spirit in a believer's life is not miraculous, it's moral. Worship, thanksgiving, and submission. Are you being, are you flat right now or are you being filled as evidenced by your worship, your thanksgiving, and your submission? I want to close with this, going back now to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and we're going to look at John chapter 7 at the commitment we need to make to keep on being filled, to being filled, and to being filled some more. The context is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last day Jesus is going to stand up. He's going to cry out some words. Uh, The context is a hot, dry, dusty land. Man, he's connecting with them when he uses... uh, the metaphor of water and talking about thirst. Water, of course, again, being a symbol for the, old, for the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Now listen, let me just read the entire uh, three verses. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers or streams of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Again, that last act in his saving ministry. So what he's saying here, again, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So you should ask the question, well, that sounds great and everything, very poetic, but how do I drink Jesus? He's not a fluid. How do, how, do, how do I drink? Well, he answers that. He's using synonyms. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said. So how do you drink of Jesus? You come to him. Specifically, you believe in him. You believe in his promises. Drinking is believing. Believing is drinking. If you'd like to mark up your Bible, circle drink, circle believe, and put a line. That's what he's saying. And the result is fullness. 
as you drink, does it say, you'll be filled. In fact, you'll not only be refreshed, you will be a source of refreshment for others, which is why it's awesome being around spirit-filled people, right? Because they're full of worship and gratitude, and they, and they submit. The point is plain, and I think I have two fill-in-the-blanks there. What does it mean to keep on being filled? To keep on being filled means you have to keep coming to and believing in Jesus. You keep coming to Jesus, and you keep believing in Jesus. As you drink of Jesus, the Spirit fills you. As you come to Jesus, the Spirit fills you. As you believe in Jesus, yet again and again and again, believe in His promises, the Spirit fills you. And this is crucial, because so often in this conversation, people think about the Holy Spirit and being filled apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Like they disconnect. It's unbiblical. Have you noticed that there's some cases where people hardly talk about the Holy Spirit? They might not even, frankly, know that much about the Holy Spirit. And yet, they're such Spirit-filled people. Why? Because they're coming to Him. They're believing in Him. They're fellowshipping with Him. They're drinking of Him. And on the other hand, you can have, there are cases of people who talk a whole lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They know a lot about the Holy Spirit. And yet, they're not filled because they're not actually coming to Jesus. They're not actually drinking of him. No, to keep on being filled, we keep on coming to Jesus. We keep on drinking of him and believing in him. Remember, it's passive. We come to Jesus and then we're filled. To keep on being filled, we've got to keep on coming to and believing in Jesus. John Stott said the Christian is a spiritual dipsomaniac. I never heard of that word. Anybody heard of that word? Dipsomaniac. That means somebody just craves drink. He's talking about the spirit here. Is a spiritual dipsomaniac. They're always thirsting and they're always drinking. That's good. That's good. Now you might say, and with this I do close, that all sounds so ethereal still. Okay, drinking means coming to Jesus. He's up there. And believing in Jesus, well, I already have. I want to, I mean, save me. So I want to give you four really tangible things. Four really, surrounding the word preach, pray, read, and walk. Because Jesus is alive. God accepted his payment in our behalf. He is our righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. God looks at me, he sees the very righteousness of Christ. Because of that, I can spend my life turning from my own righteousness, which we always run back to, right, to the righteousness we have in Christ. Now that keeps us from pretending and performing and withering in our heart instead of repenting and growing. And the only way you're going to do that is if you preach the gospel to yourself every day. Y'all are preachers. You preach the God. When's the last time you preached the good news to yourself? It's a good habit to wake up with. Preach the gospel. That's drinking of Jesus, the one who accomplished the gospel. Then this. 
prayer. Because Jesus is alive, we can come to the Father. That's the whole gospel logic of Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Praying. When we're praying, we are drinking. We will be filled. Reading, I'm sorry, preaching the gospel to yourself, praying, and then reading. Jesus said this. Oh, if we took this seriously. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what's the content that you're eating? Shows, movies, sitcoms, blogs, news, whatever. Like vastly more than the Word of God? Of course you're not going to be filled. I'm not going to be filled like that, right? To be filled, we need to be nourished. And I, I shouldn't use the word eat. We should have pig out voraciously, like serrated knife, linen napkin, diving in. We have to eat the Word of God. So there's preach, there's pray, there's reading, and there's walk. God saves us into a family. This is what this Holy Spirit baptism is. We're baptized in the Spirit. You are, and you are, and you are, and you are, and you are. He, he, he creates a family. And healthy family members aren't going to grow in every aspect of life is if they isolate themselves, right? You can't. You believe lies. You don't deal with conflicts. No. When he saves us into a family where there's other brothers and sisters, then we walk with them. And sometimes that's kind of hard, right? That's why we have a commitment to reconcile swiftly. But that's what happens when you walk together. And then, as you do that, I believe there's an aspect in which the Spirit fills us as we walk with those who have also been baptized in the Spirit. There's one baptism, and there's many fillings. Man, I, I just think that if, 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 you, if we follow those things, we'll be filled. I think it'll be like an Acts 4.13 thing. You remember the, the, the people said, the lost people said, man, those guys are unlearned, but they've been with Jesus. Remember that? Like, they, they could tell they'd been around Jesus. They've been filled by the Spirit as they were with Jesus. There's one baptism and there's many fillings. Are you being deflated or being filled? How do you need to respond to this message? How do you need to respond to this message? This is the last message on revival because we're going back to 1 Corinthians. But my hope and my belief that revival can be imminent as we give ourselves to this. Has the, has the Spirit of God tapped on your sternum? Said, hey, you, I want to talk to you because I love you. I want to fill you. It ain't smoke and mirrors. The Lord laid it out here quickly, clearly. Would the music team come? We chose these songs very intentionally. These are songs to respond, okay? So I just, as your, as your friend and as your pastor, I want to encourage you, try not to just check out, right? Try not to. Um, 
Sometimes it's after the Spirit has really spoken to you through the Word, He puts the pedal to the metal during the song, and the Spirit of God just says, hey, I really want to minister to you right now. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for the truth that you've shared with us from your word today. We want to be people of the Spirit. We're not chasing experiences. We're chasing Christ. And he fills us with the Spirit, creating more worship of him, encouragement of others, hearts of gratitude and submission. That's a powerful pack of people like that, Lord. That would be light and salt. So, Lord, would you move in our hearts and cause us to respond in tailor-made fashion as you've spoken to each of us as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.